Our first message this afternoon is from Mr. Curtis Whiteley. It is entitled, The Ethics of Faith in Wisdom. Curtis. Thank you, Ron. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone, as it always is, on this nice fall, chilly change day that we have. Uh, if you're like me, I really appreciate this, this change. Uh, but get into my message. As Ron just mentioned, this is uh, the seventh part of the series that I started on the book of James uh, back at the beginning of this year, The Ethics of Faith. And today, it's all about wisdom. What a word, wisdom, being wise. That's a common term we've all heard of, we've grown up with it. Maybe we've, you know, we have certain things that we think of, certain characteristics that we think that's associated with this term wisdom. Well, just to kind of review us, in a nutshell, at the beginning of this series, one of the things that I said in looking at the book of James is really the entire book is like a book of wisdom. What James is going to be talking about in these six passages that we're going to quickly look at today, in a nutshell, is all about wisdom. It's all about wisdom. And so in looking back at what we've talked about through the past six uh, sections of this series, we've looked at many different things that all involve wisdom, and in particular, wisdom that comes from God. In whole... The book of James is all about something really, really simple. Putting your faith into practice. Walking the walk, not just talking the talk, so to speak, right? And so through that, we've looked at many different things. We've looked at putting our faith in the way we treat people. You know, not having partiality. We've looked at putting our faith in the way we speak to each other. The way that we speak to people that we don't even know. And our actions so when we look at this, this message today, this is not the only section of James that really talks about wisdom. In fact, this is almost kind of like a, like a summary of what James has already been talking about. And so some of the characteristics, just to get back to that point I just made a few minutes ago, because the word wisdom is something that we've all grown up hearing about. You know, there's different things that all of us could probably think of when we think of wisdom. Maybe we have a particular situation that we can think back to. Maybe there's a particular person in our life or something that we experienced where we really felt like that was a great example of wisdom. Some of the characteristics that I just wrote down, obviously by no means is this comprehensive. When I think about wisdom is patience, discernment, perseverance, humility. Humility is huge when it comes to wisdom. Because humility is the act of realizing that you are not capable of and by yourself to understand all things, to know all things, to maybe know the decision on things. And you need to take a step back with patience, having discernment, and maybe evaluate a situation. Caution is another characteristic that I just kind of jotted down here too. Uh, to me, that, that's a characteristic I think of when I think of wisdom. Self-control. Someone who seeks to be objective, not just you know, subjective. You know, the idea of where you try to go in and you try to make a judgment objectively. You don't try to allow your biases uh, to creep in into your decision, but you try to, you know, from a neutral standpoint, understand the situation and make a decision upon that. 
A formal definition of wisdom coming from the dictionary.com website, which I quickly referenced this morning, says this, the quality, this is what it says about wisdom, the quality or state of being wise. I don't really tell you that much, does it? But it goes on, knowledge of what is true or right, coupled with just judgment as to action, sagacity, discernment, or insight. That's just a formal definition. I think all of us could probably sit down with a piece of paper and something to write with, and we could probably write down, you know, what is your definition of wisdom? Because we could even go to the Bible and probably, like, come up with pages of definitions of wisdom based upon the Bible. So with this, in your minds, thinking about what you think about when you think of wisdom, I want us to think about where do we get those ideas about wisdom? Where do we feel that we get our wisdom? Obviously, many of us are thinking probably the same thing. Well, we know the truest source of wisdom is God's Word, the Bible. But we all have lived lives. Most of us in here are of the adult age. And we've experienced things. And we've had people in our lives. We have seen situations. And there's probably something somewhere in our past, maybe it's the recent past, maybe it's when we were growing up as kids, and we can think about maybe different people in our lives that we consider very wise. I know, I think most of, many of us would agree with this, but growing up as a kid, uh, I always thought of, because of what they tell you, you know, wisdom, that's an old people thing. You know, people who are old, they're the ones that are wise, not us young people, right? Because there's kind of this adage of like, well, you know, you're young and dumb and stupid, and, and then you get old, and then you become wise. And that's why, you know, it's, it's almost like a rite of passage, like it was like there was an of age to be able to become wise. And not to uh, keep harping on that, obviously, I don't think age means anything. It should, but it doesn't always. I think we can see examples in history where age does not result in wisdom, but me as a kid, and this, this is something that is, is really genuine, uh, one of the individuals that I really felt uh, was very wise and I had a lot of respect for, uh, and I have a lot of respect for people in here, but this one's not living anymore, and I think a lot of you would agree with this, is a man by the name of Roger Hausman, uh, which in a lot of ways uh, uh, was a part of some key parts of this congregation's history. And, and, and a contributor to some of the key parts of this congregation's decisions. Uh, and and in, in particular, uh, decisions about uh, money and about purchasing a building and things of that nature. But I was just thinking about this. You know, it's our parents, our relatives, our friends. Maybe it's a coach that we had. Maybe it's a teacher that we had. Maybe it was, you know, whoever. We all have different situations, different circumstances, different people that have came into our lives. But when we ask the question, where do we get wisdom in 2017, has it changed? Well, not really, but maybe the mediums and when people, you ask people today, well, where do you get, you know, inspiration or wisdom? Uh, some may say, as strange as it might sound, well, I get it on social media. Because there's this big thing that's going on right now, if you are involved in any of these outlets, where they are called memes. And they're these little quotes or these little pictures uh, that just say something or quote something, or maybe it's a joke, it's for you know, humorous purposes, or it's for inspirational purposes, or it's for wisdom. 
And if you are part of any social media, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, you will probably run across some of these memes. And as I was thinking about this, I just kind of went on the, on the internet, and I just kind of Googled, you know, wisdom quotes from famous people. And I just wanted to kind of get a list. And I forgot the name of the website, uh, but I think it's from brainyquotes.com or something like that. I have it up here. Yeah, wiseoldsayings.com, brandyquotes.com is, is another one. And I just kind of like threw up a bunch of different quotes uh, randomly. There was hundreds of them. But the first one is from, uh, you can go ahead and turn it. I didn't write it down on my notes, so I have to see which order it is. From Confucius. You know who Confucius is? Confucius was a Chinese philosopher uh, that came up with a, uh, not really a religion, more of a philosophy of how people should live. And in history, people look at him as being someone famous, kind of like Socrates or Plato or one of those other figures. But Confucius wrote or said, life is really simple, but we insist on making it complicated. Now, I'm not promoting or disparaging any of these quotes. It's not my favorite quotes or anything like that. This was just a random pick, and so I just want to kind of put that out at the outset. But you might run across some meme someday or some saying maybe it's on a billboard somewhere on a marquee, and you'll read something, and it's a quote like this. The next one is from, and again, I didn't write them down on my paper. It's from Abraham Lincoln. In the end, it's not the years in your life that count. It's the life in your years. Maybe you've heard of this quote from Abraham Lincoln before. The next one is from Dennis Waitley. Life is inherently risky. There is only one big risk you should avoid at all costs, and that is the risk of doing nothing. So it's another quote. Another, you know, some people look at it as a wise old saying, as the website calls it. The next one is from Oprah Winfrey, a little bit more modern here. You get in life what you have the courage to ask for. You get in life what you have the courage to ask for. I think I just have a couple more. The next one is Oscar Wilde. To live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people exist. That is all. So, maybe you've heard of this quote before. Maybe you're a fan of Oscar Wilde. And I think I have two more. Life is 10% what happens to us and 90% how we react to it. And that's from Dennis P. Kimbrough. Maybe you've heard that quote before. I think the last one, my favorite, is for the athletes out there. Rocky Balboa. Sylvester Stallone says, it's not about how hard you can, uh, you can hit, it's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. Obviously, people in athletics have you know, always highlighted Rocky as being an inspiration, even though he's a fictional character. But anyways, I was just wanting to show you just some random quotes of some different people of, of the history that have some, you know, obviously some status of some sort. Maybe they're a famous author, a famous writer of some sort. And I was just wanting us to think about, you know, there's a lot of self-proclaimed wisdom in this world. And not saying any of those quotes were bad or any of those quotes were good. But we have to think about how do we receive our wisdom. So on that note, let's go ahead and let's read James, the third chapter. We're going to pick it up in verse 13. Just to kind of give us a little background, last message was all about the ethics of faith in our speech. And James tells us about how careful we must be when using the instrument that we've been given that's called the tongue. 
Because it's one of the only instruments that can bear both good fruit and bad fruit. And as James says, out of the same mouth you bless the Lord comes horrible cursing things. You know, things that are meant to, to, to cut down and not to build up. And so it's a double-edged sword. And so he goes into this right after he has that discussion about the tongue. And he starts out with an interesting question. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so on that point, I have one main thing I want us to get out of this message. I usually have more, but today it's really simple. James presents us with two different types of wisdoms. The, wisdoms of this, the wisdom of this earth and the wisdom from above. So my main point is simple. Seek wisdom from above, not the wisdom of the world. Which is obviously much easier to say than actually to do. Right here, James gives us this breakdown. He tells us about the wisdom of the world and the wisdom from above. He tells us what the attitudes, what the motivations, what the results are for the wisdom of the world and likewise what the results are, what the motivations are and the attitudes that are associated with the wisdom above. And so with that, I just want to kind of cite, I'm not trying to... Uh, uh, quote anything, but I did kind of, in preparing this message, I had uh, read some resources, and there was a particular chart that I was looking at from an author that I'm uh, pretty keen to, to look over, and his name's Bob Diffenbaugh, and on this subject, he had this chart, an interesting chart that kind of talked about the two wisdoms, and so I'm kind of pulling from this as I talk about the origins, the attitudes, the results of both types of wisdoms. And so if you look at what James has to say, the or origin of this wisdom, the wisdom from the earth, the wisdom that destroys, is simply demonic. It's simply from this earth. It comes from the natural senses of human beings. The motivation of it is envy, jealousy, and selfish desires. Literally, it's a motivation that's bent on self, self-promotion. The attitude and actions that are associated with the wisdom of this world is arrogance and words over works. Think about what James says. Words over works. Now, he doesn't say that, but think about what it's focused on here. The wisdom of this world is more concerned with words and not actions. We can see people that say all the right things, they do all the right things, and this is kind of going back to what our first uh, or the last, uh, last section of this series was all about. But their fruits, their works, their ethics that come behind it do not back up the things that they say. Also notice, and I want to bring this out in just a little while whenever we're looking at another section, in the 
New King James, there's this word that's translated sensual. That's kind of an interesting and complicated word to kind of really get the full meaning and the context of what James is using this. He says that not only is it worldly, the, the, the wisdom of this world, bent on itself and it boasts and it's demonic, but it's sensual. And that word can have many different meanings, but in a nutshell, simplified, it just means humanity. It means like the animistic you know, nature of humans apart from God. And if we can think about that, we all have natural inclinations, right? We all, as human beings, have natural appetites or natural things that maybe make us motivated to do something or make us you know, excited about something. Maybe it's words, maybe it's humor, maybe it's things like that. And so what James seems to be getting at is that this wisdom, the sensual wisdom, is more interested in the quick little memes, and nothing against memes or anything like that, but the quick little sayings. Oh, that sounds crafty, that sounds clever. That person's better at speaking or better at saying or better at delivering maybe a so-called wisdom speech than that person over here. Never mind the person over here that's not as good. His, what he's saying, the content of his message, the content of his suggestion, the content of his recommendation is more rooted in truth than the one who's better at actually saying stuff that's really not rooted in truth. And so when you look at all of these different wisdoms, or you look at the wisdom from, from, from the earth, rather, you look at the production, what it results in, disorder, evil practices, and destruction. We're going to see an example of that in just a few minutes. When we look at the wisdom from heaven, obviously it has the exact opposite. The, the origin is not from the earth. It's not demonic. It's not bent on the human senses, but rather comes straight from God himself. The attitude that is behind it is meekness, humility. Because the attitude behind the wisdom from above is an attitude that's not set on self, but rather set on where it originates from. And it's also an attitude that results in actions. Actions that are pure, peaceful, gentle, accommodating, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and not hypocritical. All of those things that are associated with what James has been trying to say throughout the previous parts of this message or, or of, this, of this letter here. And the results are simple. Righteousness, peace, and blessing. I wrote something down when I was thinking about this. And this isn't a quote for me. This isn't a wisdom quote. This was just me trying to figure out a way to kind of comprehend exactly what James was saying. But true wisdom in the end, because what James seems to be bent on telling us is, is that wisdom is demonstrated through a good life in humility. A life that doesn't just go around saying the right things, but lives the right things. That proves itself through the humility that's manifested in the individual. So true wisdom will result in a manifestation of God's righteousness in our behavior. So if you want to ask the question, who's someone that's wise? Is it because they're just really good at answering your question? Or is it because they've demonstrated a life that lives the wisdom and that wisdom has resulted in their humility and to their meekness and to their, uh, uh, their allowance to realize that not every, they don't know everything, that they don't have all of the answers. 
And so with this, I want to go to John, the seventh chapter, and I want to look at, I think, what we would all agree with, the greatest demonstration of wisdom, the greatest demonstration of humility that we could find in the entire Bible, and that is, of course, Jesus himself. And I'm going to John, the seventh chapter, because this has been always something that has stuck out to me. Uh, And in particular, when it comes to the way that we as societies and cultures think about who is wise and who is smart and who's the expert. And looking at how Jesus, he doesn't fit into the paradigm of his time. And if you really think about it, if we live as the Bible tells us to live and with the wisdom of God, we're not going to fit into the paradigm in our own culture either. So here in John, the seventh chapter, just to give you some context, Jesus has instructed his disciples to go up to Jerusalem and keep the feast, but he himself stayed behind in Galilee and waited to go to Jerusalem about midway through. And picking it up in verse 10, John says, But when his brothers had gone up, he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? And so right here, we are reading a very familiar passage that we've all read before. Maybe you've read it to the, at, the, at the feast that you, we just attended uh, and that we just kept just a few weeks ago. This is a very familiar part of the scriptures for us. And Jesus here has gone up to the feast, and it looks like he didn't go for a reason. He didn't go initially for a reason, but we know that Jesus, and we're going to get to this, was having to kind of navigate through some, some dangerous waters. There's three really interesting observations that is very amazing when you really think about them, about what Jesus does here and when, we, what you look, when you look at this story. The first one is the boldness and courage of Jesus. As I just mentioned, this was a dangerous mission. Jesus knew that he was being sought out already by Jews. Not just Jews, but by the Jewish leaders, the ones that were not real keen what he was doing even though he knew this he still went up to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles now there is a tradition not know how completely clear it is in all the different circumstances but a person because some believe that Jesus was intentionally deceiving people with his teachings there is in the Talmud as they call it or the oral tradition a place where a person could be stoned to death if they were found attempting to deceive people, specifically religiously. And so knowing this, knowing what was on the line, Jesus still went up. The second thing as an observation that's pretty amazing in this situation is the lack of formal education that Jesus had. As it says in the passage, how does this man know letters having never studied? And what that simply means, how does he know so much about the scriptures? How does he know so much about this without ever going to the schools that we've always thought you really needed to go to to know the scriptures at this level? Jesus was never enrolled in a rabbinical school 
He never went through any of the training that the experts in the law went into. He wasn't a part of any of this. He broke the mold when it came to his training. But yet, he possessed knowledge about the scriptures that was unsurpassed during his time. The third thing is what this message is all about. His source. Let's think about the source that Jesus had. The Jews were astonished because of the authority in which he spoke. One of the common practices during this time, even we could say it's a common practice in our time, maybe for different reasons, was that when a rabbi, for example, might get up and might say some things, they would quote or cite some prominent rabbi, some prominent figure. And doing that would bolster, obviously, what you were saying. So, someone might get up there, they might cite something, they might say something, and then they would, as their citation, they would claim, this rabbi taught me this, or I am quoting so-and-so. And this was a way to bolster someone's teaching. Jesus didn't do any of this. Jesus simply did not, at the end of his message, says, and I got this from rabbi so-and-so, or I got this from this book, or from this sage. Rather, Jesus just simply sat down on his own authority, as it seemed, said the things that he said. And this is the same thing we see in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, from Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he says all the things that he says, all those teachings, and at the end, one of the things that the people were astonished was that he spoke on his own authority. He wasn't quoting the rabbis. He wasn't quoting all of the sages or the, the right books. But we know that Jesus did indeed have a source for his wisdom and understanding. And if we continue, starting in verse 16, we see that source by Jesus' own words. Verse 16 says, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine, that is my teaching, is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. So here we see that Jesus affirms that his wisdom, his knowledge, his teaching comes from God himself. And we know that Jesus was the Son of God. We know the qualifications that Jesus had. But what is interesting here is, although he had those qualifications, he was the perfect example for us. Because he doesn't speak on his own, but he humbles himself and says that my authority comes from above. Not on my own doctrine, not on my own teaching, but from God himself. Now let's step back and think about this. Let's try to translate that into our modern age. And maybe situations we might experience. I don't know if it would be totally equivalent, but today we do have many people who get up and says, I've had a revelation from God. This message, this teaching comes from God himself. I've had a dream from God. I've had a vision from God. God came to me, Jesus came to me, and told me this. And what do we usually do whenever they do that? We usually think one or two things. They're not all there. They're self-deceived. Or they have some sort of agenda that they're trying to get through. Or a combination of all of them. That's what we usually see. And unfortunately, in many cases, that's probably true and probably is the case. 
But the way that we react in our day and age is a little similar to the way that people reacted in Jesus' day. The difference is, is that we can see the fruits of Jesus. We can see what has taken place. If Jesus got up there and said these things and did not demonstrate actions that backed up these claims, actions that backed up the things that he said, of course he would not be accepted and believed. But in this passage, it's interesting that Jesus says, My doctrine is not mine, but he who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Verse 18 said, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. And this is the exact same thing we see James talking about when we see him talking about the worldly wisdom. Wisdom from this world is about the self. Wisdom from this world is about promoting the self. It's a, it, it, it's, it's a wisdom that is motivated by positioning oneself higher for their own gain. Not positioning oneself higher in God's standing, but higher for man's standing. Worldly wisdom wants to impress worldly people, worldly things. So looking at this and moving on, we see that God, in this case, was the source of Jesus' wisdom, as we already knew. So there's three things. What three things, what things can we get out of this uh, story of Jesus? And the way it's more or less the way people reacted. You know, I don't want to fault the way that people thought about Jesus, all of them. Because to some, many of them, it probably was kind of strange. You grow up in an age, this is the way people do things, and when people don't do things the way that you think they're supposed to do things, it makes people uncomfortable. That's something we experience today in our own 21st century context. We are not above this type of behavior, even in our own tradition. We see that through Christian history, people have come on the scene, they do things differently, and sometimes we're a little bit nervous about that. And so we want to be quick not to judge this situation too quickly and not to say, oh, look at them, how unrighteous they were. They were so undiscerned and they, they were so unspiritual they couldn't even figure out what was going on. We have the luxury of looking back 2,000 plus years later, having the whole story in one setting, looking at it to see how everything unfolded. But rather what we want to do is we want to look at these scenarios, look at these stories and try to gain wisdom from them, and try to gain understanding, and try to learn from them, as God has intended them to do. So there's three things I want to bring out in looking at this, and we're going to look at another little scenario in just a minute, but the first one is, is that the world is saturated with carnal and false wisdom. That wisdom that James talks about, that worldly wisdom, the world is full of it. The world is full of it. Today we live in a world that is corrupted and drowned in false wisdom. And it's not hard to find. Literally, you can find it at the click of a button. You can find it at just clicking a controller. The world is full of falsehood. We see it in politics and academics and, of course, religion. We live in an age where science, philosophy, humanism have literally become religions themselves. And above all, they are mechanisms for promoting the self. In the context of Paul's day, he had to deal with a particular situation that involved worldly wisdom as well. 
in the church of Corinth. Let's go ahead and let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the second chapter. Many of us have been familiar with this, the problems of the Corinthian church that Paul had to deal with, that Paul had to instruct. But in this context, Paul opens up his, his book talking about the divisions that are going on within the church. In fact, there's divisions that are so strong that some people were saying, no, I'm a follower of this person. Oh, I'm a follower of that person. I'm a follower of this person. Or this person baptized me. Hi, I'm so-and-so, and I was baptized by Apollos. And that means something. That's literally how people were reacting in this particular context. And so we see that Paul, in the 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, verse 10 through 16, he says, But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit, For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man, which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And what's interesting is, is that Paul right here uses that phrase, the natural man. It's kind of a similar word to what we talked about, that sensual word that we saw in James. Which talks about and denotes, it's the Greek word, pusukikos. I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly, but it describes the natural life apart from God. The natural life apart from God, literally denoting how naturalness of humans cannot discern or understand the spiritual things of God. And so right here, and picking up in verse 15, let's just finish this. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And see, that's what was going on in this particular context. It seemed to be that people were like more bent on, well, hey, this guy has really smooth words, man. He's so clever. And the way he talks about, the, you know, he has this knowledge and he has like these, these, you know, these secret ideas or these, you know, new ideas about this. And that's kind of what people were being drawn to. The sensual side of their human nature. Is, was getting them. And so Paul was sitting here talking about, you know, listen guys, I mean, there's many things that we have problems with in this church, but I'm going to address this one first. So I just want to, that first point, the world is saturated with carnal and false wisdom, even in religious circles. Secondly, we must be willing to accept God's wisdom and will. In the story we just read about today, many that came into contact did not believe Jesus. Many of the people did not come into contact, did not come, that came into contact with Jesus did not believe him because he did not fit the mold that he felt that, they should fit, that he should uh, fit. And so what we have to do is we have to be willing to accept God's wisdom and will, and the way we do that is judging it by the fruits, by the things that people actually are producing when it comes to this. The third thing, and just kind of quickly going through this, just running out of time. Those who speak on their own authority glorify themselves and not God. And that's exactly what James was getting at, and that's exactly what Jesus was getting at when Jesus was saying the things that he said. 
Jesus tells us that he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. But we, but we must ask the question, what are the reasons people speak on their own authority? Even Christians, even people that are supposed to be you know, leaders within you know, God's church, not speaking about anyone here. I'm just saying that we've seen from the past, from our own history. Number one, pride. Pride's a simple answer. They trust in their own wisdom and knowledge, wanting notoriety for themselves. Have we ever been in a situation where we felt like we were motivated by our own pride? By maybe getting some sort of notoriety out of something? Maybe someone like holds you up in esteem. And they think, man, you're really an expert in this. You're really, you're really knowledgeable. And you kind of let that get to your head. This is, this, is, this is a situation. These are things that we have to think about. We can't think in terms of, oh, this is what the world does. This is what we do. Because we live in the world. And we still have carnal nature. Although we've been baptized and we are putting off that old man. Secondly, another reason, lack of faith. This is a big one, I think. People sometimes feel that they have to add to the words of God as if they're not sufficient. Think about that. They have to add to the words of God as if they're not sufficient. Notice Jesus' example. He did not need to add to the teachings of God. He didn't need to add to the scriptures and say, well, you know, this is what so-and-so said, but this is really how it is when it came to maybe one of the prophets that he was reading in the synagogue. But he read from the scriptures, from God's word, and expounded upon them. I want us to look at this last passage, 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, verse 26. This is actually before what Paul said, getting into 1 Corinthians 2. So 1 Corinthians the first chapter, verse 26 through 31 says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus. Who became for us wisdom from God. And righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That it is written. He who glories let him glory in the Lord. And so in closing. As kind of going on. What James had to say. We know that the true wisdom of God. Will manifest itself in the righteousness of God. In us. In our actions. The wisdom of God is eternal. The wisdom of this world is temporal. We know one thing, and it's becoming more and more evident. The wisdom of God is being more and more rejected in this world. So as we move forward, and as we get out of this message, I want to just reiterate to seek the wisdom from above, not the worldly wisdom of this world. The wisdom that will pass. The wisdom that will eventually be demonstrated not to be wisdom at all, but it to be foolishness. We know that to the world, to the worldly wisdom, the teachings of God is foolishness. But in the end, it's the exact opposite. The teachings and wisdom of this world will be truly demonstrated 
to be the true foolishness.